Last week, near the beginning of the year, we have uh, started a new look here in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, at uh, the Ten Commandments of, of God. And last week, we um, did kind of a broad overview, uh, looking at the purpose of the Ten Commandments and um, the trust that we have in the Lord. And this morning, we're going to dig into that very first commandment. Many of you know, and for those of you who didn't, I spent uh, eight years, uh, first when I was in seminary and then uh, when I was bivocational at my previous church working for Starbucks. And one of the perks of being a partner at Starbucks is that you got a certain number of free beverages uh, during your shift. And so we were able to drink, we were expected uh, to know the product, we were uh, constantly sampling things, but we were allowed certain uh, personal uh, partner beverages during that time. And with the nearly infinite number of combinations, both of flavors and, and drinks, there are teas, there are smoothies, there are frappuccinos, there uh, are coffee-based drinks, non-coffee-based drinks, uh, it wasn't very difficult for employees to find a certain beverage that was their favorite, or even a couple of beverages that were their favorites and that we would regularly um, t- partake of while we were on shift. But still, it's not uncommon, as we're human beings, that oftentimes we had cravings for things that weren't on the menu at Starbucks. And so we would want a a, a soft drink, or we would want um, a sport drink, or something that wasn't there. So it wasn't uncommon to see partners come into the store with drinks from other restaurants. There's one partner, however, while I was here at a store locally in town, who regularly brought her own coffee to our coffee shop. And it wasn't simply that she had brewed her own personal roast of coffee at home or she had come in with a coffee that she'd brewed in her own personal mug. No, this particular partner regularly walked into our store in her uniform, past our line of customers with a Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee cup. And we used to rag on her all of the time. Because even though there wasn't something sinister behind her actions, she had that preference. But she would drive past our store to Dunkin' Donuts, get the drink, and then bring it to the store. And just almost like a matter of pride sometimes, just plop it right there in the front of all of our drinks. And we would rag on her, and we would joke, and we would talk about, aren't you loyal at least of any kind? Dump it in something. I don't care. And bring it in instead of marching past all of our customers with this competition's beverage. We understand the importance of loyalty to our company, to our brand, to anything else. From early ages, we teach our children to pledge their allegiance to the United States of America. We brand ourselves, our clothing, and our vehicles with sports teams that we are are loyal to. We've grown up watching movies where there are people who end up sleeping with the fishes because of their disloyalty to the family. Loyalty matters. Loyalty is something that we all understand in our world. And if we are so loyal to the relationships that we establish in this life, whether they be to companies or to products or to teams or to individual people, how much more then should we be loyal to the everlasting eternal relationship that has been established for us by God? That's what's at the heart of of God's first commandment. This first commandment directs who we are to worship. So look with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read the first three verses together this morning. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love that is steadfast. It's a love that is loyal to us, even and especially when, Heavenly Father, we are not loyal to you. That is faithful even when we are faithless. You are the God who sees all of our faults and all of our failures, and you love us anyway. And you have done everything that is necessary that we might be restored to you that we might have an everlasting relationship with you, that we might know you. And so, Heavenly Father, you not only demand, but you deserve our worship. You deserve our loyalty and our absolute allegiance. And so this morning, as we look at this first commandment, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grip our hearts with your love and that we would love you in return. And in loving you, Heavenly Father, we would be loyal to you every moment of every day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. As I said, this first commandment directs who we're to worship. The assumption is that we are worshiping something. As creatures of the everlasting, eternal God, we are created to worship. Worship is as natural to you and to me as breathing or feeling. Worship is a part of who we are, and worship can kind of simply be understood as this. It is our response to something that moves us. When you're watching a national championship game and you see all of the loyal fans there on the sideline and their team scores the winning touchdown, what do they do? They don't sit quietly back and and clap and say, oh, what a great job. They cheer. They have an entire body, emotional, vocal, mental, physical response to what just took place on that field. It is, in a way, an act of worship. When we respond to things that move us in this life, we can be motivated in our worship either by love, which is probably the the most pure form of worship, but we can also be easily motivated to worship by fear, Because in fear, we often turn to the thing we trust in. And the giving of or the placing of trust in something is an act of worship. It's not a matter of if we love. It's not a matter of if we trust. It's a matter of what we love, what we trust. It's a matter of what we worship. And so the foundation of God's moral commands, his system to these people that he has brought to himself, is this first command that directs who they are to worship. It's the foundation of everything else that the Lord is going to do. Every other command that God is going to give, both here and in the rest of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, the other 613 commands that are really, just as we saw last week, a working out of these ten. The very foundation is this one, you shall have no other gods before me. And what we'll find is that at the heart of every single violation of any of God's commands is actually a breaking of this one. To break any of God's other commands is ultimately to fail to put God first. 
because from the very outset, God lays claim to our affection. He lays claim to our faith. He lays claim to our absolute and total allegiance. And we can hear the echoes of this command in what Jesus would later reiterate in his ministry. When he was challenged on what is the most important command in all of the law, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. It's the foundation of every other one. He says the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's two commands we saw last week. Working to the ten commands. The first four govern our affection, our relationship with God. The last six govern our love and affection and relationship with others around us. But here at the very beginning, God commands, you are to love God alone. You are to trust God alone. We are to worship God alone. And that, brothers and sisters, is what's difficult. You see, the difficulty is not necessarily that you and I don't worship God first. The difficulty that we struggle with is that we don't worship God only. When God speaks these commands to these Israelites, what we find is that the Israelites are trapped between two people. God has just rescued and redeemed them from Egypt, and he is sending them to the land of Canaan. They had spent a couple of centuries surrounded by the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped many different gods. They had a god for almost everything. A god that ruled the day, a god that, that brought healing. They, they worshipped the Nile River itself as the source of life. They were polytheists. And God is rescued them and brought them out of Egypt, and he is going to take them to Canaan, where they are going to be surrounded by people who are polytheists. The common religion of that day, and reality is the common religion of our day, is that people worship many different gods. God wants his people to stand out like a jewel among the dust, as being a people that worships one God and only one God. Not one God above other gods, only and always one God. And this was a struggle for the Israelites. We find it even after Moses is, de is dead and Joshua has brought them into the land. At the end of the book of Joshua, we hear that de declaration of Joshua that is so popular and probably on all kinds of walls in all of your homes. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Have you heard that before? Before that, though, this is what Joshua declares to the people. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Even after everything that God had done, bringing him through the wilderness for 40 years, bringing them into Canaan where they defeated all of the different nations of Canaan, even after all of that, the people of Israel still have gods that they brought with them from Egypt. They're not worshiping God alone. 
And so just before he dies, Joshua declares again, put all of those false gods away. Don't bring with you those those false practices that you had in Egypt, that your fathers learned in Egypt of worshiping these many different gods. God is not one God chief among many others. He is the only God. And he deserves our complete and total allegiance. This temptation is odd. God seems to imply, as he says, you shall have no other gods before me, seems to imply that there are other gods. Why wouldn't God just say, hey, I'm the only God, period. You need to declare that and you need to know that. But what we find throughout Scripture is references to this Hebrew word that's underneath this, Elohim, which doesn't just mean God, it means supernatural beings. And we as Bible-believing Christians understand that there are angels, there are demons. And so, There are supernatural beings, small g, gods in Scripture that bring temptations. We see this temptation even in the New Testament as Paul declares that these gods are not gods at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is one, no God, but one. Even in the New Testament, the Christians that were there, the Christian converts, were struggling with this temptation to worship God and. But the Bible repeatedly declares that these gods are false gods. They are no gods. So the question becomes, what is the temptation that you and I have? It's not to believe that these gods are somehow as good or as powerful as the God, but instead, worshiping these gods brings something. I think Alec Montier, in one of his commentaries on the book of Exodus, explains it this way. He says, Baalism, which is a a religion that was in Canaan that the Israelites are going to, right? Baal was the god that was worshipped there. He was the storm god. He was the fertility god. And so, as they're coming into Canaan, what is tempting of Baalism is this. He says, whatever else there was about it, Baalism offered the promise of one, material prosperity, and two, a religion in which sexual experiences were integral to worship, and the allure was understandable. So while Baal didn't actually exist, the practices of worshiping Baal did, and that was what was tempting. The promise in this easy believism of power, of pleasure, of prosperity, of prominence, all of those things are what tempt us to worship something alongside of God. As we're seeking what James says, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, It's the same temptation over and over and over again. And we, like the Israelites, are surrounded by a world of people worshiping at the altars of false gods, promising pleasure without commitment, promising power without responsibility, promising prosperity without compassion, and so much more. And so the temptation is to rush beyond God when we don't get what we want in the time that we want, and so we run after the things to grab them in our own strength, in our own ingenuity, in our own might, in our own power. And we fall into this trap of worshiping not something other than God or instead of God, 
but something alongside of God to get what we want. And so as we think about this command that all of our loyalty is to be for the Lord and for the Lord alone, we can discern that there are kind of two foundations to it and then one application of it. So as we think about how our loyalty matters, we have to first and foremost understand that God demands our loyalty because of who he is. Do you see how God rolls right into this command without any type of lead up or anything else? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, period. There's no hesitation. There's no stop. There's no transition. It's just straight in. God demands their absolute, complete, and total allegiance. He demands their loyalty. You shall have no other gods before me. And the question is, what does that word before actually mean? Because the temptation can be, if there's not to be any gods before him, then that means that there's not supposed to be any gods in front of him. And there are some who have come to this and said, well, God only forbids there to be gods above God, so we can worship other gods under God. So what does it mean that we're not to have any gods before him? Well, first off, God's declaration there is that there are no other gods before him chronologically. The fundamental assumption of the entire Bible is monotheism. When you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, before you find anything else, what do you find? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are no other gods in front of God chronologically. He was the first before anything was created. There was only God. And so there can't be anything in front of him in that sense, before him in that sense. But there are also no other gods before him in power. There are no other gods more powerful than God. And that was the entire purpose of God's systematic destruction of the idols, the false gods of Egypt through the ten plagues. If you go back and you read and you study the ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt to free his people, every single one of the ten plagues corresponds to one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. They worship the Nile as the source of their life. So what does God do to it? He turns it into blood, a sign of death. They worship the sun and the God, sun god Ra. And so what does God do? He blacks out the sky. They believe that Pharaoh was God, the chief god Ra incarnate. God with man's clothes on. They believed Pharaoh himself was a god, and the firstborn son of Pharaoh was the next iteration of the god Ra. So what does God do? In the final plague, he proves that not even Pharaoh's firstborn son is out of his power. God is systematically destroying every single God that the Egyptians worshipped. He is proving that he is more powerful than them. It's the purpose of what God does on, excuse me, Mount Carmel when Elijah faces off against the prophets of Baal and challenges them to call down fire from heaven. They believed that, that God, the Lord Yahweh, he was a good God, but he was a God who only had power in certain places. And they were on this mount, Mount Carmel, which was the domain of the storm god Baal. So Yahweh had no power. Baal had no power. God proves the fact that Baal is the one who is false. 
and he displays his power. There are no gods other than him chronologically. There are no gods other than him in power. And in truth, in honesty, and across the scripture, we find that God is declaring there are no gods besides him at all. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 115. It talks about the idols of man. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. What the psalmist is declaring is that these gods who are gods are no gods at all. They're false from every every age. They are deaf and dumb and blind and mute. They're powerless. They can't move. They can't speak. They can't anything else. And so as God declares that we are to worship him alone, he is protecting us because the truth of the matter is we saw last week all of God's commands are rooted in love. And in obeying them, we know that as a good father, he wants what is best for us. And God is protecting us from the reality that there are devastating consequences to our lives when we worship gods that are no gods at all. Because as the psalmist is talking about these idols that can't see, that can't speak, that can't move, that can't think, that can't feel, that they are just a block of wood, a block of stone, a block of metal, the psalmist warns in verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust them. When we worship gods who are not gods, when we worship or love anything but God alone, what we end up doing is stumbling around in the darkness of our own ignorance struggling in our lives, in our own strength, in our own power, which is no strength and no power at all. And so God lays claim to our allegiance because God is the only one who has eyes to see and ears to hear and a mouth that speaks and who rides upon the clouds of the storm, who cannot be defeated, who knows the end from the beginning, and who guards and keeps and guides Paul goes on in the New Testament to, de- to declare the, false, or the consequences of worshiping false gods. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, Paul says, Therefore God gave them, the ones that are worshiping false gods, who are rejecting God as he's revealed himself, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you hear behind that? What God gives them over to is their lusts for impurity. Behind our worship of false gods is always a desire to grasp and take for ourselves what only God can give. The idol beneath all other idols, whether it be money, whether it be power, whether it be pleasure, whether it be popularity, the thing underneath it all is me. It's not okay for God to be God. It's okay for him to to be God, but I want to be God with him in my life. I want to direct my paths. I want to direct my ways. I want to be loved and adored and worshipped. I want to get what I want when I want it. And I'll do it by whatever means is necessary. And so we pretend to be gods, setting our own path in our own way. And the consequence of that, 
when we reject God for who he is and attempt to be God in our own lives is God will give us over to the wants of our lives. And what that results in is a constant and eternal separation from God in hell. But God doesn't only demand our loyalty. The Lord also deserves our loyalty because of what he's done. He demands our loyalty because he's the only God. He deserves our loyalty because of what he's done in our lives. And what we find throughout Scripture is that God actually has a double claim on your worship and your affection and your love and your trust. First and foremost, God has a claim on your affection and your love and your trust because he has the right of the creator. He made you. John chapter 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And without Him, there was nothing that was made that was made. He made all things. He made you. He made me. He made the world. He has the right of ownership because He made it. And nothing else can vie for His position as the creator of the world. And so, we owe to Him our love and our affection because he is the creator. But more than that, as the creator, he's not cold and distant and demanding. He's also the God who redeems us. He has the right to our worship because of creation and he has the right to our worship because of redemption. That's that's actually the very foundation of this relationship that he has with these Israelites, right? We talked about it last week. The foundation of the Ten Commandments is God's work of redemption in their lives. I am the Lord, your God, a personal relationship, who did what? Brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before we find the law, we find the gospel. The good news that God has done what they could not do. He has set them free. He has rescued them. He has pursued them. He has come to them and answered their prayers. And so God has the right over these people, not only because he created them, not only because he called them, but because he paid the price to rescue them. And so they are twice his. We are twice his. And so he commands their absolute and total loyalty. They're to have no other gods besides him. They're to worship God alone. Which is what makes what happens in John chapter 20 so scandalous. Because in John chapter 20, after Thomas has refused to believe his friends that Jesus has been raised from the dead until he sees him, meets him, touches him, experiences him in the flesh. Thomas meets the resurrected Jesus Christ, this good Jewish man who had been raised with the very first commandment, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall not worship any other gods but him alone. When he meets the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he falls on his knees and he declares, my Lord and my God. He's not supposed to worship anybody but God. And there he is on his knees worshiping Jesus as God. Because we find that the story of the Israelites is our story too. The God who created us is also the God who rescued us and redeemed us by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect image of the invisible God who declared to his disciples, when you see me, you've seen the Father. 
who perfectly obeyed the Father in all of his commands and never once failed and never once faltered, but instead kept the law perfectly, and who nevertheless went to the cross to bear the punishment, the consequences for the sins that he never committed but that you and I did. And he paid the price of our redemption on that cross. And he was raised to new life that you and I might receive the promise of everlasting life in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now sits as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who is interceding on our behalf, and who is the one who will one day come again, and he will sit on the throne of all of creation and be worshipped. Because in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. If we want to keep the first commandment today, we must worship Jesus. That's the fulfillment of it all. To worship anything or anyone other than Christ is to disobey the very first command, you shall have no other gods before me. Because all that is God is in Jesus. And Jesus represents all of God's heart for you and for me. So then how can we test our loyalty? We detect our loyalty, our love and our trust and our worship of God through those two things. Our love, and our trust. What do we love? We like to throw around in our culture today that that phrase, I love. Maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a coffee, maybe it's a restaurant, maybe it's, it's a game. Maybe it's someone. But what we love is what we worship. So what do you love? What do you sacrifice for? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your talents? If you show me your checkbook and you show me your calendar, I can tell you what you love, I can tell you what you worship. What do you love? When you're sitting alone or when you first wake up in the morning, where do your thoughts and your affections go to? What do you want? What do you desire? What is your love? And there can be good things. You can love your spouse. You can love your family. You can love your church. But when those loves compete with our love that is due for God alone, they threaten our obedience to this very command. What do you love? But then what do you trust? We're living in difficult days. There's COVID. There's flu. There's COVID flu now. There's threats to religious freedom. There's threats to our nation. There's threats to our homes. There's threats all around us. What are you trusting in to deal with those threats? Is it your political party? Is it our military? Is it yourself and the gun that you pack on your side, your, your display of strength? Is it your finances, that if I can just get the right amount of money in my bank account, then whatever it is that comes, I can handle all that uh, threatens the security of my family? 
Where do you go in your trust? Where do you turn in times of difficulty? What is your first inclination when there's a problem in your life? Who do you go to? What do you go to? What do you love? What do you trust? We can learn a lot from Paul's example in Philippians chapter 3. Where Paul's relationship with Jesus changed his relationship with everything else. As he boldly declares, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says everything that is material, everything that is powerful, everything that is prominent, everything in my life that I used to love is worthless comparing to knowing Jesus, to knowing him in his righteousness and his resurrection and and knowing him in his suffering. We don't like to talk about sufferings and the role of sufferings in the life of the believer, but the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, if we are going to be in Christ, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations. And it's in that time of suffering that we have a sweet fellowship with Jesus. And like Paul, we can know him, become like him, and have the hope of the resurrection. What do you love? What do you trust? Is it someone? Is it something? Is it no one or nothing? You don't turn to anybody or anything when you are afraid. There's nothing that you really love that you can declare. I would argue that it's not that there's nothing there, it's that you are there. If you don't turn to someone when you're afraid, then you're turning to yourself and relying on you. Because the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, like that employee at Starbucks, we're all tempted to walk around this world with the uniform on of the one who provides for all of our needs, who gives us life, who gives us love, who promises us everlasting relationship with him, and yet we're walking around sipping from the cup of the world. Because we're living the lifestyle not of God alone, but God and Jesus and whatever's in front of me right now, whatever I want. So my challenge to each of us today is as we're here at the beginning of 2022, We heed the command of God here that's echoed throughout Scripture and the command that's echoed in the call of Joshua to the people of Israel. Declare today who you will serve, who you will love, who you will worship. And let's posture ourselves before the Lord today in repentance for worshiping anything alongside of God, even ourselves especially ourselves. And let's commit today 
God, whatever it takes, destroy the idols in my life. Wage war on the gods that I love and that I trust so that you're the only one left standing. That my love for you might be pure and my faith in you might be sure. How do you need to trust in God and love God alone today, this week, this year? I invite you, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Would you go before the Lord in prayer? Cry out to the Holy Spirit and ask him, God, how do I need to respond? And I'll close this in a moment.